0: topic for this evening's discussion is entitled, What is Secular Buddhism? One of the things I like to do at the onset of each year is to talk a little bit about this tradition that we call Buddhism. Uh, I have personally been practicing mindfulness meditation for over 40 years and been teaching it for over 30. And when I started teaching intro courses, I would not identify myself as Buddhist. Um, I did not grow up in any kind of religious tradition. My parents never spoke about religion. We never went to church. Um, They were not very philosophical. Uh, And uh, what I understood about religion seemed bureaucratic to me and uh kind of stiff and and frankly not very philosophical until I found out about uh, something called existentialism, a poem of philosophy when I was in college. Actually, I was introduced to existentialism when I was in high school. One of my best friends was uh, uh, quite philosophical and he introduced me to it and I pursued it further in college And then, after college, I um, began practicing transcendental meditation in the early 70s. I practiced that off and on for the 70s. And then, in the uh, 1982 is when I was introduced to uh, mindfulness meditation, Theravada Buddhism. Um, So this issue of what is Buddhism? You know, I had been practicing for a while and I really didn't understand it, Um, the institution. Uh, I believe that the the originators of all the major religions, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, most well uh, known, they weren't really setting out to create a religion. Uh, They were on a, uh, a quest for spiritual development in a particular context, particular cultural context. Now They had their uh, brilliant insights, but after their passing, um, the culture that they had lived in um, kind of took over and significantly impacted their uh, insights, their teachings. With uh, the Buddha, he was raised in an environment that was transforming. That part of the world uh, was moving away from a primarily agricultural uh, culture to a uh, beginning of a, a trade culture and city-state culture. So There was a lot of upheaval and in fact, during his lifetime, uh, after his awakening, the political organization that he grew up in was overrun by a neighboring uh, kingdom and uh, the town he was born into was destroyed. So uh, there was a lot of change going on. He was raised in the Brahmin tradition. Rig Veda and the Upanishads were the dominant spiritual teachings and the Brahmin priests were the interpreters of that. Um, so he was exposed to that. He was not a Brahmin. He was a Kshatriya clan. But he was exposed to those teachings and apparently it wasn't sufficient because he was apparently philosophically inclined uh, from early on and When he was old enough to produce an heir, he left and basically stopped practicing religion and um, began practicing what became known as uh, yoga and meditation. So uh, he developed this tradition that we now call Buddhism. But after he died, um, there was a lot of interaction between the developing... Hindu religious tradition which emerged out of the Brahmin uh, tradition and uh, there was, so there was this competition between the two and a lot of it was political and cultural so some centuries after the time of the Buddha the first emperor of a uh, united India Ashoka uh, he basically made the uh, uh, budding Buddhism the state religion. So it became institutionalized, very similar to what happened in Christianity. Uh, Several centuries after the time of Jesus, uh, the Emperor Constantine institutionalized Christianity. It became a state religion. Um, So there are similarities there in those um, developments, historical developments. Over time, the institutionalization kind of took over from the core spiritual aspirations, the values of the originators, and the clerical classes took over, and uh, they became more interested in maintaining their own priorities, their own views, their own values, their own uh, power, uh, and that superseded the spiritual principles that were embedded within it. Those spiritual principles are still there within the uh, uh, religions, but along with it is a lot of stuff that was uh, superstitious in all of the religions that I've mentioned, superstitious, culturally driven, uh accommodations to the power structures and so forth and so on. And, you know, over the centuries, religions have been responsible for a great deal of destruction in the world. Not just being very helpful, uh, compassionate, uh, generous, but also very uh, greedy and uh, destructive. So that's, that's my attitude all along. But after I'd been teaching for a while, I decided, well, I walk like a Buddhist and I talk like a Buddhist. I might as well own it. But I couldn't figure out what I was going to identify with. So there were terms being bandied about. Um, one of them was uh, Western Vipassana, another one was Secular Buddhism. And uh, maybe a year or so ago I came to the conclusion that I can work with the term Secular Buddhism. Now before I go to talk more about that, I want to just talk about what's going on uh, in this uh environment we live in now this cultural environment Um, number of Americans who identify as Christian has been dropping since the 1970s and there's an increasing number of young people who are refusing to identify with organized religions whatsoever but still consider themselves to be spiritually inclined Uh, do my research for this talk came across a website University of Southern California Center for Religion and Civic Culture and read this posting on their website. <coughs> religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who answer none of the above on religious identification surveys are the fastest growing cohort of young adults in the United States, Western Europe, and parts of Latin America. They're also among the most stigmatized groups in religiously conservative parts of the developing world. Yet many of them are deeply committed to values like tolerance, service, and economic justice that are vital to healthy, stable societies. Their sheer numbers in the West have already begun to reshape conversations about ethics and belief. And the deep penetration of social media in the global South, particularly among millennials, will likely mean that individualism, a touchstone of both globalization and religious disaffiliation, will shape religious culture even in parts of the world where affiliation trends remain high. Now, Um, When I was a uh, psychotherapist, I used to teach courses uh, for continuing education units for other mental health professionals at uh, Valencia Community College. And one of the courses I taught was uh, religion and spirituality and psychotherapy. So I did a lot of research on that. So I pulled some of that up as well for this uh, talk. One of the things that I discovered, is sociologically, uh, there are different categories or layers um, of reasons why people are participating in uh, some sort of religious um, tradition. The first is the largest group, and these are people who were raised in that tradition. I recently talked with one of my meditation students who's retired and was raised in a particular Christian church she's a very dedicated meditator but she attends these church services because I was raised in that denomination and I like the rituals and I love singing in the choir so there's that larger group of people who are uh, perhaps spiritually inclined this person would be among them Uh, But they're more involved with the church because it makes their life comfortable and familiar, their friends are there, um, so forth and so on. The next group are those who attend because they make interpersonal connections there for social and business reasons, not because they're particularly spiritual. Their participation is concerned with the benefits of status that come from that, and they're more likely to be hypocritical in their attitudes. The next group, and, and they're not, you're not likely to find uh, people who have spiritual aspirations in that particular grouping. The next group are those who attend out of fear or through seeking uh, emotional security. Now, I've been calling those people scared again Christians who are really afraid that they're going to go to hell uh, if they don't belong to that particular church or who are prepping themselves for heaven after they die. In the Buddhist or Hindu traditions, uh, this sort of uh, affiliation, um, their aspirations are organized around avoiding a troublesome rebirth or hope to gain a more benevolent rebirth. But it's the same sort of attitude. Finally, the smallest group will be it could be the people who um, are there belong to a religion because they, they are truly spiritually inclined. Uh, they, are, they might have been born in that religion, or they might be converts from another religion. Uh, they also might be monks or nuns, or some other kind of um, spiritual discipline that it entices them. Not necessarily clerical. It could be. Uh, ministers or pastors or imams uh, whatever the designations are priests it could be that but um, not necessarily so you can see there's a, a kind of a a pairing down the smallest group is the one that I just described now um, Secular Buddhists are likely to be found to be spiritually inclined without any particular religious affiliation. The nuns. Now, we live in a peculiar time. I've talked about this so many times. Uh, This is probably the most transformative period of all human history. So many things are changing quite rapidly. A lot of things have changed in my lifetime. Um, So, uh, there's that issue that inspires people or discourages people from joining institutions because institutions seem to be problematic. I mean, the obvious example for me is the uh, MAGA phenomena. Uh, most people who are interested in um, the Make America Again, Great Again uh, slogan are afraid that the, the way of life they grew up in is going to go away and that you know, the future is ruined for us all. They're not in capable of adaptation uh, to these new constrictions, uh, considerations. And uh, they're being really impacted by that. So, as we go forward, as history goes forward, it's quite possible that the secular Buddhists will somehow or other, under social pressures, become institutionalized and organized. But it's also possible that out of this kind of cultural um, disruption, um, some new uh, insightful personage will set step forward or group of people and, and transform the whole notion of what it means to be religious. It's quite possible that uh, secular Buddhism will uh, evolve into that. Now what's the word secular mean? I looked this up in the Merriam-Webster dictionary. The etymology is from late Latin secularis, from seculum which is translated as the present world, generation, age, (coughs) century, In contemporary usage, according to Merriam-Webster, different designations. First one is of or relating to the worldly or temporal secular concerns. Second one is not overtly or specifically religious in terms of secular music. And third one is not ecclesiastical or clerical. I went to one of my favorite starting points for my research, Wikipedia, and there's actually a, an entry in Wikipedia on Secular Buddhism. And here's a quote from that. Secular Buddhism is a broad term for a form of Buddhism based on humanist, skeptical, and agnostic values, valuing pragmatism and often naturalism, eschewing beliefs in the supernatural or paranormal It can be described as the embrace of Buddhist rituals and philosophy for their secular benefits by people who are atheist or agnostic. The Insight Meditation Movement in the United States was founded on modernist secular values. Jack Kornfield, an American teacher and former Theravadan monk, stated that the Insight Meditation Society wanted to present Buddhist meditation without complications of rituals, robes, chanting, and the whole religious tradition. S. N. Goenka, popular teacher of Buddhist vipassana meditation, taught that his practice was not a sectarian doctrine, but something from which people of every background can benefit, an art of living. This essentially treats Buddhism as an applied philosophy, rather than a religion, or relies on Buddhist philosophy without dogmatism. While recent scholarship has shown that such framings of Buddhist tradition were in large part rhetorical, and that teachers such as Goenka retain their traditional religious commitments in enacting their teachings and disseminating their meditation practices. Such rhetorical reframing had a powerful impact on how Buddhism was appropriated and repackaged in the context of the emergent globalities of the latter part of the 20th century. Now, I actually sat some retreats that were... uh, providing teaching by S. N. Gwenka through uh, audio and video recordings. And he was raised in Burma, which is uh, now uh, Myanmar, in a Hindu family, and had a transformative experience in his adulthood. He was suffering from horrible migraine headaches and uh, went to doctors all around the world because his family was very wealthy. And... Uh, could get no relief. Then a friend suggested that he go uh, do a retreat with a person named Uba Kin, who was a secular Buddhist. Uh, And he did, and his migraine headaches went away and never returned. So this really, really impressed him. So he started this movement. Uh, But when I would listen to his recordings or watch him on videotape, uh, At the end of each talk, he would chant uh, some kind of uh, Pali, Theravadan Buddhist chant. Uh, But he said over and over again, this is not to make you you a Buddhist. This is to make your life better. Um, And he said that if you are a Christian or uh, Jewish or Islamic or any other kind of religious affiliation, Take it with you. Take it back to that tradition and it will improve your ability to practice in that tradition. So, um, Jack Kornfield, um, I've read several of his books. He's a really excellent uh, author. He was a Buddhist monk for several years in Asia and after leaving his monastic commitments, he went to graduate school and became a PhD psychologist and practicing psychotherapy influenced by his Buddhist training. He and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, uh, major instigators of secular Buddhism for many years, they founded the Insight Meditation Society in 1975. That's where I went for my first residential retreat in early 1982. He later uh, participated in the organization of Spirit Rock, which is a, a similar retreat center in Northern California. More recently, I've been reading several books by uh, Stephen Batchelor, who uh, was a monk in several different traditions for a number of years. But uh, then he left the robes behind because he was disillusioned by the um, religious um, rigidity, the bureaucratic rigidity of the religions that he was uh, practicing in. And he's a very well-respected Buddhist scholar and teacher and author. Uh, He's written books like uh, Buddhism Without Beliefs, Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist, The Faith to Doubt, Glimpses of Buddhist Uncertainty, and uh, more recently, uh, Secular Buddhism, uh, after Buddhism, Rethinking the Dharma for a Secular Age. So here's what are called ten theses of secular Dharma that I downloaded from that book, which I think is an interesting consideration. I'm very much in agreement with it. First consideration, a secular Buddhist is one who is committed to the practice of the Dharma for the sake of this world alone. Second one, the practice of the Dharma consists of four tasks to embrace suffering to let go of reactivity, to behold the ceasing of reactivity, and to cultivate an integrated way of life. Third, all human beings, irrespective of gender, race, sexual orientation, disability, nationality, and religion, can practice these four tasks. Fourth, the practice of the Dharma is as much concerned with how one speaks, acts, and works in the public realm as with how one performs spiritual practices in private. Fifth one, the Dharma serves the needs of people at specific times and places. Each form the Dharma assumes is a transient human creation contingent upon the historical, cultural, social, and economic conditions that generated it. Sixth um, theses. A practitioner honors the Dharma teachings that have been passed down through different traditions while seeking to enact them creatively in ways appropriate to the world as it is now. Seventh, a community of practitioners is formed of autonomous persons who mutually support each other in the cultivation of their paths. In this network of like-minded individuals, members respect the equality of all members while honoring the specific knowledge and expertise each person brings. Eighth, a practitioner is committed to an ethics of care founded on empathy, compassion, and love for all creatures who have evolved on this earth. Ninth, practitioners seek to understand and diminish the structural violence of societies and institutions, as well as the roots of violence that are present in themselves. And the tenth thesis a practitioner of the Dharma aspires to nurture a culture of awakening that finds its inspiration in Buddhist and non-Buddhist religious and secular sources alike and I think that's very much in alignment with I've uh, believed myself and now I'm reflecting on it It might be reading this book um, that I just quoted from was what uh turned it around for me and helped me to realize, okay, this is secular Buddhism. I'm okay with that. It's what I practice. And I think that there are tens of thousands of people around the world now who are practicing secular Buddhism, uh, primarily in the West, but also in places like Australia and and, uh, Latin America, uh, and even in Africa, certainly in Europe. And it's an authentic attempt to understand what the Buddha originally created before political and cultural pressures caused the original form to become a religion. Now, talking about this person we call the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, um, it, it, the way he was raised was dominated by the Brahmin religion. Now, he, he really wanted to find a way to resolve the problems of human emotional distress and confusion. Now, distress and confusion is something that I've been uh, contemplating and emphasizing in my Dharma talks for quite a while now. We usually translate dukkha as suffering, and it's adequate, but I don't think we can really work with that, as well as with the terms distress and confusion. I'm speaking from my background as a psychotherapist. Uh, Distress has to do with the emotional Quality of our experience and emotions are basic drivers of our cognitions. You know, we are organized like other primates, like other organisms, around maximizing pleasure and minimizing um, threat. And uh, layered on top of that is our ability to think, uh, to create a narrative, to remember things and speak about them and develop an identity but underneath all that is this distress the confusion comes about and this is something I've talked about um, a lot recently confusion comes about because the way we are trained we are uh, conditioned towards certain expectations, an ideal identity, an ideal self and uh, because they are ideals we cannot live up to them ideals are abstract they're guiding principles but when we live the way the brain works does not provide the degree of of, uh, proficiency in processing that allows us to realize the ideals so that's where the confusion part comes in So, uh, we're afflicted with distress and confusion, and I think that what this fellow, the Buddha, was after, and Jesus and Muhammad and other, you know, Lao Tzu, perhaps, uh, maybe even somebody kind of, I think, legendary, mythical like Moses, uh, were trying to address this problem of distress and confusion on a personal quest level, if you will. And they found a variety of ways to Liberate the mind from distress and confusion. And I think that's what he was uh, up to. Of course, after his uh, profoundly transformative experience, that we call awakening, the experience of nirvana, um, he was honored with the name uh, Buddha. And so, when Westerners first encountered the East, India, um, they had the same kind of attitude uh, about the Buddha, the statues that they saw, as they did about Jesus on the, you know, the, on the cross, so to speak, the iconography. And so they assumed that the Buddha was a god. People worshipped the Buddha as a god. And I imagine in some of the cultures, the way it was organized, the religion was organized, the Buddha was portrayed as a god. Hinduism is considered to be an avatar, uh, a special manifestation of uh, Brahman. Uh, But that's not what the Buddha was teaching. He was much more psychological, much less iconographic, I guess you could say. Um, So a different term that would perhaps be um, more accurate rather than Buddha would be Bodhidharma. What, what this path is, is Bodhidharma. Bodhi is the word for awakening in Pali. And dharma is the ways and means for realizing awakening. So that's what, that's what this is really is. Now, interestingly enough, after his awakening, the Buddha did not use a uh, first-person designation to describe himself, to introduce himself. He said, the Tathagata in the third person. And the word Tathagata, the way I interpret it is someone who has mastered this or mastery of this process. And um, this person has the ability to describe it. So um, that's what uh, uh, Buddhism really is. And I think that's what uh, contemporary secular Buddhism is trying to uh, Achieve is this um, process. Now we talk about awakening, experience of nirvana, but awakening is something that we all do every morning when we're asleep. So my approach to this practice, all these years, has been not so much about realizing nirvana, although I think that that's there's definitely a potential for that when the conditions are right. Um, more along the lines of having a more integrated personality that's ethical, that's compassionate, generous, unselfish, um, altruistic, that that kind of personality structure. That's been my aspiration. Uh, The way I've described it before is that when I started out with this practice back in the early 1980s, I was warding off the demons of my life And the last maybe 10 or 15 years, I have been feeding the angels, rather than warding off the demons. So, another consideration about secular Buddhism is the degree to which contemporary neuroscientific and psychological research has been investigating and significantly supporting the validity of basic principles of Buddhist psychology. And how mindfulness and loving-kindness meditation, loving-kindness meditation, training, alters the structures of the brain, and there are demonstrable benefits for one's well-being, physically and emotionally, and one's prosocial actions. Um, there's a book that I read, maybe a couple of years ago, that provides really good information about how this research originated and developed inspired by the Dalai Lama. Uh, the book is Altered, State, Altered Traits by Daniel Goleman and Richard Davidson. These are both PhD scientists and they've both been practicing Buddhist meditation for at least 50 years if not longer. Uh, they've known each other for that long. Uh, so there's been some very sophisticated research on how Mindfulness meditation changes the structure of the brain in ways that are health-inducing and are great ways to cultivate mental health. Uh, I went to graduate school as a secular Buddhist to integrate what I was learning from Buddhism into my psychotherapy. When I first went to graduate school in the mid-'80s, my cohort in graduate school didn't think about Buddhism, care about it. It was like, they regarded it as some sort of new age thing, which is odd because it's, you know, 25 centuries old. But it's a new age uh, cult, if you will, or or fashionable thing. Uh, But now, mindfulness-based stress management, mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, Uh, There are several other different acronymic uh, clinical approaches to um, mental health that are very well respected and very well researched. So that's something that's important about secular Buddhism, the contribution that it's making to uh, physical and mental well-being. There's another aspect that I think is pretty interesting that I've talked about, which is epigenetics. this is research that's been being done for, I don't know, maybe 20 years or 30 years. But what they understand is that, you know, when you look at the DNA spiral, there are two columns, if you will, and little bridges across them. Hundreds and hundreds of these bridges. And those bridges um, play a role in the replication of each cell. And when those DNA spirals through cellular activity, are exposed to some kind of stimulus, a chemical or some other stimulus, Um, they are either activated or deactivated. Deactivated. That's what epigenetics is. So, uh, for example, the pollutants in the atmosphere. There's a lot of research going on to understand how cancer uh, begins. Some of it's epigenetic. Some of the, for example, when people uh, smoke cigarettes, the carcinogens in there change the structure of uh, the way the genes operate. And eventually a cancer comes from that. That's one example. But there's been research done in the last five or so years about how mindfulness meditation can provide epigenetic benefits for people which I think is very interesting. I've talked about this before, too. Um, First of all, we know for sure that when a woman is uh, pregnant, the chemical balance of her metabolism, whatever's being circulating through her veins, the blood and other hormones, travels through the placenta into the developing fetus and affects that development of that fetus, either harmfully or helpfully. Well, it's also possible that this sort of epigenetic influence uh, can be applied in that regard. Uh, If a person who uh, is carrying a baby in her uh, uterus um, is practicing mindfulness meditation, it's changing the way her body operates and that may be transmittable to the next generation. I find that fascinating. I was at a conference some years ago, and one of the presenters was a, a PhD a woman who uh, research, does research on um, child development. And During the intermission, I went up to her, and I told her I was a psychotherapist, practiced mindfulness meditation, and... Um, I asked her if she was familiar with epigenetics, and she said, of course. I said, I wonder, is it possible that uh, mindfulness could induce uh, some kind of epigenetic metabolic change in a mother could be transmitted to the child? And she said, it's possible. It would be very, very hard to do that research, but it certainly is possible. And so I latched on to that you know, as something very hopeful for um, coming generations when their are parents, um, particularly the mother, uh, is practicing uh, mindfulness meditation or perhaps either other meditation uh, traditions. So um, that's another thing that I think is very interesting about uh, uh, the whole notion of Secular Buddhism, this correlation with psychological and neurological research. Another consideration is the internet. Uh, The first interactions between, uh, you know, of any kind of of, uh, frequency or intensity occurred at at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Uh, Westerners started to travel into India, and China, Japan, um, Indochina, and engage with people there who were Buddhists. And uh, Theosophical Society created a conference, first worldwide conference of Buddhists, in uh, right around the beginning of the 20th century. And so uh, these people who have been pretty much practicing in isolation, with some exceptions, um, for centuries, started to talk to one another. Well, now that's going on, um, you know, on steroids, so to speak, because of the Internet. I have access to uh, teaching, doctrine, uh, practices from all over the world at my fingertips, right? Um, which is amazing. So that's another thing about secular Buddhism. Secular Buddhism has that kind of cultural freedom to not feel bound by some kind of creed or dogma, to stick to one particular tradition. I, my strongest influence has been Theravada Buddhism, but I definitely am not what you would call a card-carrying Theravada and Buddhist. I'm a secular Buddhist. So, uh, I think that that's um, important to consider as well, about secular Buddhism, as this of um, um, willingness to engage all these different traditions and glean from them some of the uh, improvements of, of understanding of this ancient teaching. So let me talk a little bit about how Buddhism has come to the West. There's different ways it has come to the West. One of them is through what we call imported Buddhism or immigrant Buddhism. These are people who come from Asia and bring their religion with them and create uh, temples and monasteries and so forth and so on. And they're around the United States. There's uh, two that I know of here in Central Florida. Uh, Probably more that I don't know of. Uh, So they bring the doctrine, the the dogma, the uh, ministerial clerical elements with them. So, um, they're practicing the the rituals and concepts, etc. And a lot of Americans uh, participate in those religious uh, traditions. Another way that it's organized is Buddhism that is uh, practiced by Westerners and largely led by Westerners, but introduced by Easterners. The example that comes to mind that people here in Orlando know well about is the Quantum School of Zen which was uh, begun by uh, Seung Son, a Korean immigrant who was a monk but then uh, became, I guess you could say secular moved to uh, Northeast and uh, now there, uh, this uh, Quantum School of Zen scattered all around the country some of the rituals, some of the traditions are there, but also there have been significant modifications in the doctrine and and, uh, the approaches to the practice based on the uh, Westerners. Then there's the secular Buddhist organizations, like I mentioned, the Insight Meditation Society. Um, That's where I've gotten most of my training. I've been in two three month retreats at the insight meditation society and one one month retreat and many many one week retreats and so i think that an important part of of secular buddhism is a commitment to some kind of retreat experience and that's been one of my goals as a teacher here in central florida you know i i had to travel up to uh, massachusetts to go on retreats uh, or uh, with the Goenka retreats to northern Florida. Uh, so I really wanted to have the opportunity for people here in central Florida to be able to, the opportunity for people to be able to go on retreats. In fact we're going to be hosting a retreat next month here um, led by Shana Catherine who is a secular Buddhism practitioner and uh, about 15 years ago, we started to produce uh, residential retreats here in Central Florida. So we've been moving this forward. Now, I think that a commitment to residential retreats is an important part of this. Uh, it's good to meditate on a regular basis. It's, it's wonderful. But when you go on a retreat, it makes a big difference uh, uh, regarding the, your immersion in the process, from the time you wake up to the time to go to sleep trying to um, train your brain your mind uh, to be more alert and more balanced in functioning to um, bring certain skills to distress and confusion to clarify and relax your uh, mind and your body Uh, so uh, I think that that's Another attribute of secular Buddhism that we can uh, uh, integrate into our lives. Now, what can we continue to uh, consider? Well, I think that the Four Noble Truths and uh, is a really important aspect of it, and it actually, in these uh, ten um, theses. Uh, practice of the Dharma consists of four tasks to embrace suffering, let go of reactivity, behold the ceasing of reactivity, and to cultivate an integrated way of life. That's the four noble truths. In fact, um, he, uh, uh, Bachelor talks about this. He says, you know, they're called the noble truths, but he prefers ennobling. In other words, when you, when, when Buddhism first started, You were born into a particular clan, and the Brahmin clan and the Kshatriya clan were the nobility in that particular time. But um, the the noble truths that the Buddha was talking about, for people from any clan, could make their lives more spiritually noble through their uh, understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And the noble eightfold path. So, uh, first noble truth is you know dukkha, distress and confusion. Second one is the causes for dukkha, which I've talked about so many times: craving and clinging. Um, liberation from dukkha is the third noble truth, and the noble eightfold path, which is the uh, ways and means for accomplishing this process of awakening. I'm not going to talk about that anymore um, although it's in my notes but you know that's been a core part of my teaching that and the Satipatthana Sutta um, Four Foundations of Mindfulness Discourse uh, pretty much core in my understanding of secular Buddhism and in that uh, study I had to kind of work my way through some of the archaic Jargon in there, and find ways to um, repurpose or recreate the terminology that's more congruent with how we understand the world to work these days and our own psychology. Um, now, Theravada, I mean Buddhism, well, Theravada Buddhism, and uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which is Vajrayana Buddhism and Zen Buddhism um, all have something to contribute to world culture. And one of the things that I find very promising is that contemplation is starting to be included in some Christian uh, traditions. Uh, contemplative prayer is an example of that. Uh, or centering prayer, which I think is practiced in some of the Protestant denominations. So I find that very hopeful and very promising. And we need to train ourselves. The ethics of traditional religions are entirely appropriate. It's the application that's problematic. Uh, And so one of my hopes is that secular Buddhism can provide support for bringing this kind of training to the traditional religious denominations, whether they're Christian or um, Judaic or Islamic, um, without denying the, the core ethical values of those traditions, but perhaps enhancing people's ability to live that way. So, this is what I have to say about um, secular Buddhism. So I now um, am open to questions or comments about this. What what do you think of this? What what implications does this have for your understanding of your life and your attempts to create uh, a better life for yourself and for those with whom you interact? Any questions or comments? Okay, Dave. um, Yeah, speak louder, Dave.
1: That's uh, what you described as you know reducing suffering, um, integrating emotions. uh, Though that's really why I'm here is that was what attracted me to you know, and I am attracted to the secular aspect of of Buddhism, not the religious. So.
0: That's really why I'm here. So, just in case people didn't hear you, what you're saying, Dan, is that um, these aspects, the secular aspects, but also the the direct application to uh, improving the quality of your subjective experience. My words, not yours. Mental health, I would say.
1: Yeah, Yeah.
0: mental health, uh, social health, too. I mean, I'm a better partner in my marriage, for sure. Uh, And... I don't think that I could have been very successful as a psychotherapist if it were not for my ability to maintain a kind of a stable emotional presence when I'm counseling with someone. Any other questions or comments? John? You have to unmute yourself, sir. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. I, I just think that the, uh, the ability to be compassionate. I find it much more accessible with sitting consistently, whereas I can catch myself in a mental game of uh, you know getting very angry. But you know I can, I can cut that off and I can go back to the heart. And uh, and I think that very much helps me a lot to keep the balance. You know, stand the breath, you might say. But uh, that's basically it. I think it opens up the heart for. Me the ability to be more compassionate. Yes, sir. Other questions or comments? Hello? Lily?
2: Yes, can you hear me? Hello? Yes? So, I wanted to say that when I first um, came to the Sangha, I know that I really liked it that there was no you know, no chanting and it was very down to the practice. And before I came to the Sangha I went to a few meetings of the Kadampa Buddhists and I noticed that for me it made a huge difference to really learn more about the psychology and the philosophy rather than you know, having these rituals with the chanting. So to me personally, it helped me a lot to get a better understanding about the background. So I really, really appreciate it, that I really appreciate the secular Buddhism because I feel that it gives me a better understanding of the practice. And I can see that when it comes to yoga, I noticed myself when I was teaching that to me personally, it helped me more to bring the practice you know, teach the core of the practice rather than doing the chanting and, and, and the all and all that. So, I don't know if that makes sense, but for me, it's, it's you know, when you were explaining it, the first thing that popped into my head is, oh, you know, it's, it's very similar to yoga. Like, you can choose to um, really teach it on a secular, in a secular style or do the more traditional one where you get into the whole... Ayurveda
0: and, and chanting like that. Yes, I, I understand what you're saying and uh, certainly makes sense to me Any other thoughts to share? Steve? Hey Peter Thank, Thanks for the
1: discussion on secular, right. I certainly appreciate you know just just how you've been presenting presenting this versus just the traditional uh, traditional variations you know to staying with a modernized type of, of view seems just so important because you know the modern society is certainly nothing like uh, any prior society and has, you know, the way, the way I view it is that, you know, we're probably the most uh, um, dissociated of societies from nature and the most stimulated as far as uh, thought and, and just, the, you know, what comes to us as, as all the messages each day.
0: Yes, I, I agree with that. But in, when you said that about so much thought uh, there was a, a, a important um, teacher who's no longer alive he's um, uh, from Myanmar uh, um, I can't remember his name offhand but he said that the problem for Westerners is that we think too much. You know, So... That's, that's something that's important to understand is that um, there's a, a great benefit in learning how to quiet the mind, the mind be more peaceful. It doesn't mean that our quality of thinking is diminished. In fact, quite possibly more uh, effective. But it comes from a place of quietness rather than a place, place of overstimulation.
1: Well, and, and, and therefore the practice being you know, just so so important. Um, you know, in an overstimulated society, I and mean, how else do you know we engage with it? Then, um, so I, I, I agree, and you know that statement that that you made, I think, could have come from uh, Trungpa Rinpoche,
0: which is uh, the Vajrayana teacher. Could have could have come from uh, Dalai Lama as well that's the end of our discussion for this evening i think i was inspired by your comment about compassion john i think that's what i want to talk about next week is uh how we can cultivate compassion for ourselves and for each other it's very very important so as is our custom let's sit for a moment for your practice I wish you well and I hope that we're all reasonably safe and happy until the next time we have a chance to
2: talk